This isn't going to be the most exciting message you've ever heard me preach, but I guarantee you this is one of the most important messages that I have preached uh, since I've been here, this chapter. And so take it personally. Take it between you and the Lord. I do not have an axe to grind this morning with anyone in here. I don't have a bone to pick. Amen. The church, the whole church needs this. We all need this. The guy standing up here that does all the talking, wearing the tie, needs this. We all need this. We all just need to say, King Jesus wants to address his church this morning. And we're going to try to just read the word of God and explain what it means and how it applies to our church situation. So let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 1. And I'll read down to verse 8. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I am become as sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. Charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up, doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. Charity never faileth, but whether there be prophecies, they shall fail, whether there be tongues, they shall cease, whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away, but charity never faileth, says the Apostle Paul. So the subject for this morning's message is the meaning of charity. Last time we talked about the missing ingredient Charity, the missing ingredient. Now we look at the meaning of charity between verses 4 down through 7, and we continue looking at the meaning of these words. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we want to lift up to you uh, the prayer needs of this church this morning. Those that are on our list, and uh, as was mentioned this morning as Pam went out, we pray for Sherry. We pray for the other needs that have been represented here this morning by the congregation in our testimonies and in our requests and those that are on our list as well. We give you thanks this morning to have uh, Brother Randy back with us after uh, what he's gone through and Lord to think of uh, just what Sheila has gone through and to hear that there's a no cancer uh, diagnosis and that she's clear. Lord God, we praise you for that. We give you thanks as the healer. As the good physician, we thank you for that. And we pray, Father, that you'd give her for the rest of her days uh, cancer-free uh, health, Lord. And, and Lord, we, we lift up to you our country and the needs of our country. And we pray for our leaders that they would, first of all, be saved. That you'd, Lord, do a real work of the Holy Spirit to convince them of sin and of righteousness and of judgment to come. Father, uh, protect uh, your people as they're witnessing all around the world, those in Ukraine and those in Israel as they're giving out the gospel. Bless them and protect the nation of Israel. And I pray, Father, that you'd give them a swift victory, that this would not go into another war, but that, Lord, there might be an end of this in sight, that the soldiers there could rejoice, that they're that their missions were over and they were able to go back to the regular lives. And, Father, I pray that you'd keep our country 
out of a war, and I pray for peace in our land. So, Lord, help our leaders do their jobs so that we might have peace. But, Father, I just know as we get to the end, Lord, we know we're looking at uh, several more world wars, and they're going to come. We just pray, Father, for peace so that we might be able to continue to preach the gospel all around the world. Give us understanding in these things this morning, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Now, the Corinthian believers, as I've said, they weren't using their spiritual gifts right. Uh, They had plenty of gifts. This was a pretty impressive church from the outside, and they thought they were the best thing going. They thought they had the perfect recipe for a dynamic, lively, uplifting church But they were missing something. A very important ingredient was missing in their recipe, and that was charity. You know, in verse 1, they had spiritual gifts, but no charity. In verse 2, those gifts there. In verse 3, they had sacrifice. They had service. They were doing a lot of things, but they had no charity. Paul said it was irritating to God, and it's nothing. Before God. That's the way God sees it. And that God is is saying, you're doing it for the wrong motive. The wrong motive. The right motive is charity. All right? So they weren't caring for each other the way that they should. We looked at that in chapter 12, 25, and chapter 3, verse 3. They weren't loving each other. And so Paul gives us this chapter. And so out of a bunch of church troubles comes one of the most beautiful chapters in the Bible. Isn't that something? Out of a troubled church, all kinds of problems, carnal babies, all kinds of issues, comes the most beautiful chapter in the whole Bible. Ain't that just like our God? Ain't that just like the grace of God? He can take something that's broken and bring something beautiful out of it. He can give us beauty for ashes. Amen? That's our God. And so, Paul here gives us 1 Corinthians 13, and I'm so glad because it helps us out in all of our relationships, but it's specifically intended for a church, so that's why I'm going to preach it this morning. Now, we want to understand the meaning of charity, and we looked at that before. The simple definition for that is a love that gives. It's a giving love. It's God's love. It's Christian love. It's love that flows through us to other people. It's, it's not a handout. It's not a charity case. It's a love that gives. And love, any kind of love, is hard to define. A pastor by the name of Charles Erdman from yesteryear, uh, he wrote this. He says, Paul attempts no definition in verses 4 through 7. He doesn't even try to define love. He simply pictures love in action. He shows what it does. He shows how it feels. He shows what it refrains from doing. He records the ways in which it shows up. And so that's what you have in verses 4 through 7. It's hard to define, so we're not going to try to define it either. We're just going to look at it and we're going to say, what does love actually do? And what does love not do? Okay, so verse 4, just by way of of just a refresher. Verse 4, charity suffereth long. Charity suffereth long and is kind. Those are two positives. That he gives. This is what charity does. Notice the description of charity here. And I want you to see how it lines up in just a moment with Galatians chapter 5 and the fruit of the Spirit. But as he gives this here, he's given a description that lines up with God's love. 
the fruit of the Spirit. What happens when we let the Spirit have control of our bodies and of our lives? We produce the fruit. Galatians 5, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. That's the fruit of the Spirit. That's what happens when a believer gives the, the Holy Spirit the reins, gives him the wheel, gives him control, yields to his influence. They will produce that fruit that is simply God living this, his life through the believer. And that's the only way that you can produce the fruit of love in a congregation is when you're spirit-filled. So when there's an absence of love, God's love, that means you have carnality. That means the people in the congregation need to grow up. They're not walking in the spirit. They're, they're dealing with people in the flesh, just like you would in any other situation. Dealing with people in the church, just like you would on the job site, on some committee, on some township committee, or some union committee. Dealing with people in the church the same way that you, the worldly people would out in the world. And that's not supposed to happen within the church. It's supposed to deal with one another in the spirit, Producing the, 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 the fruit. <laughs> but you see, it's, in other words, guys, what he's describing here is he's describing God's love. That's what we have here. That's why I call charity uh, love that gives. It's God's love, and it flows through us. And so he's saying love suffereth long. It'll put up with each other for a long time and suffer through it. It's not just patience, but it's patience through uh, having to put up with people. Patience through adversity. Love suffereth long and is kind. So let me put it in plain terms. The Corinthians were tired of putting up with each other. They were sick of it. They were being unkind. They were finding fault with everyone. They were envious of one another. So, oh, he's got a gift and I don't have a gift. She's doing this and she's a prophetess and she's seen by everybody. And I'm just sitting over here in the corner and nobody knows my name. They were envious. They were prideful. They were parading their gifts around before everybody in the meetings. They were anything but courteous and considerate of others' feelings. No, they were selfish, they were childish, they were short-tempered in the Corinthian church. They were judgmental, they were talking bad about each other. They took pleasure in other people's failures and faults. They took pleasure in talking about the past of brother so-and-so and what sister so-and-so used to be like and what their kids are doing and the trouble that they're getting into. They took pleasure in those kind of things. They magnified the sins of others instead of trying to minimize it and cover it up with a cloak of love. They emphasized it, and they tried to elevate themselves over the weak and the poor in the church. This was a carnal church. They were not long-suffering. They were not kind. And so Paul says, I've got to write this description to you to show you the kind of love that ought to be in a church. If a church is charitable and the people in the congregation are, are loving one another with God's love, they will be patient with one another. They will endure the faults and the inconsistencies and the little annoying things that you deal with in relationships. The weaknesses, the shortcomings, they'll, they'll, they'll seek to cover those up with love. And, uh, you know, my, growing up, my grandma, she, she didn't have a lot of expensive things. Um, she lived in a trailer for most of her life. And she had furniture, though, that last. It would last, you know. They built things back in the day that would last. 
and she didn't have the nicest stuff, but her furniture, I remember just as a, as a, as a baby and just a, just a young child, just a toddler, I remember going into their home and looking at their things, and it, it wasn't real nice. It wasn't as nice even as our home, and I grew up in a trailer too. And, but I'd look at her table, and I'd notice that there were marks on it where it was worn, probably from where they would just do the same motions over and over again with their cups or their plates or one thing or another. And I noticed where their silverware was worn and everything like that. But, you know, that home had been ravaged by sin, but she was long-suffering and kind to my grandpa when he went through years of living the life of a drunkard and a coal miner and being mean and abusive and absent and neglectful and everything else. But you know what she did with him? She was loving. She was patient. She was kind. She endured it. She put up with it and prayed for him long enough that one day he finally got saved as an older man, as way past the middle age. Amen. And she didn't go around talking about all the things that he used to do to her. She didn't do that. She talked about how wonderful God is, how wonderful grace is. And I noticed in her home that she would do things like women used to do this. They would take stuff like that and put it on tables. They had like little table coverings and little doilies. And, you know, she had a cover for her table and uh, she, they had special bedspreads and ways to make a home look nice, a way to cover up plain things, things that weren't perfect, things that were kind of worn out but, but could cover them up with something that looks nice and is clean. And that's what we ought to do as believers. We're just a bunch of plain people, worn out. We've got sin problems. We have shortcomings, inconsistencies. We've been abused. We've been through the fire. We've been through the flood. Amen. <laughs> We've been through it. And we get together, and what we ought to do is we ought to cover up one another's faults. Instead of uncovering them, we ought to deal kindly. But listen, sometimes there are small offenses that happen in a church. Some unkindness is done toward you, or something that you might perceive as being unkind that someone did or said about you, and it might very well actually be a real offense. But then charity will try to overlook it, if at all possible. Okay? And we'll try to cover it up. We'll be long-suffering. We'll just put up with it. But as you're, as you're dealing with this, you've got to think of the overall ministry of the gospel and the overall work of what we're trying to do and just say, if it's not really a big thing, just, I'm just going to let it go. And I'm just going to be kind to that person anyway. <laughs> you know, because the, the sake of the gospel and what we're trying to do here, I don't want people to hear there's trouble in Antiquity Baptist Church. And the church to get a black eye. But that's exactly what's happened. And now sometimes there are real offenses. And they must be dealt with. And if you feel offended. And you feel like it must be handled. Then you want to approach a brother or sister in a specific way. And I want to give a recommendation. Because I'm talking about being long suffering and being kind. Okay. Suffereth long. But there might come a point to where it's just saying. This needs to be dealt with. And, uh, and if you want to do that, here's the way I want to recommend that you do it. Stop and pray for that person. Don't do anything else until you stop and pray. You say, I'm hurt. I can't pray. God knows. Okay. You're his child. Think about raising children yourself. Think about how you treated those children. You still expected them to do right even if they were out of sorts and upset and having a bad day. God knows that. Stop and pray for that person. If you don't do that first, don't go talk to them. Stop praying and thank God for them. Yeah, yeah, really. Thank God for that person. You say, what is there to be thankful for? 
Well, God saved them. God placed his love upon them. There was a time when you were getting along. Think of all the good that that person has done. Think of all that person means to you. Think about the gifts that that person has. Think about the work of God's grace in that person's life. And think about this. You're dealing with one of God's children, most likely. You're dealing with one of God's children. And think about his family. How would his wife feel about it? The kids feel about it. What about his influence in the area? What about the way that it might look to lost people outside of the church if something really happens and goes sour? But then you go to him, you know, if the Lord leads you that way, you go to him and you go with kindness and you go to seek a resolution. That's, that's my advice that, yeah, there's times when we have to deal with things. Um, you know, I think this is the way my wife handles me when I do things that are inconsiderate and unkind. I think I know my wife well enough now. I know she's a praying person and I know she's thankful for me and I know she won't just come at me you know, trying to attack me, but she'll come and she's usually, she's hurt by it. She's bothered, but she's been praying and she loves me. And uh, she, she won't just come with an accusation right away, but she comes seeking a resolution. The thought is not, I can do without you. Okay, I don't need you in my life. No, the thought is I want to have a resolution. I want us to come together on this and be stronger as a result of working this out. And to come with kindness, well, it's the same way in the, in the church relationships. Where's your heart when you speak to other believers? What's in your heart when you talk to another believer? Even if they're a troublemaker, what's in your heart? Is it tender affection? Listen, we're all, we're all in need of prayer here. We're all flesh. And we all fall short. And you might make a mistake, okay? And I might make a mistake. But what's in your heart? You see, I, th- I know God looks on the heart. I know God looked down on a situation and says, she was hurt. She was trying to deal with this. It didn't come out exactly like she wanted it to. And next thing you know, tempers flare. And then they lock, you know, horns. And then they're not getting anywhere, man. It's just the wall's been put up. But if you come to it with your heart right, I believe God will look on that and say, at least there was affection there. There was tender. At least you were seeking their good. You were trying to. You, you have this deepening love for people in the fellowship, even when things don't go right. Because in some people, there's just more of a mean streak than there is in other people. And that's just the way it is. And you know it and I know it. Some people are just more kind and more submissive. We have different temperaments. Some people are strong uh, type A type people and other people are, you know, my mom would put it this way. Some people are chiefs and other people are Indians. Some people follow, some people lead. And the people who lead are strong people and they're also sinful people. So oftentimes that assertiveness causes damage. And then the people who are just followers, sometimes they, they are intimidated by trying to, to uh, confront someone like that. You know, but, but what's in your heart? If there's love in your heart, well, love will never suffer sin to be uh, ruining someone's life. 
If you love someone, you'd say, sin is affecting their lives, their marriage, their relationship in the church, and I have to confront them. They've hurt me. They're hurting others. Someone has to confront them. But if it's love in your heart, then you know you're in line with what this is saying. But if it's not love in your heart, if you just want to give them a piece of your mind, uh, don't do it. Don't do it. Because it's probably not as bad as what you think. Now, love suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not. Notice that, envieth not. In other words, you should be pleased when others do well. You should be pleased when others are used of God. In other words, if someone has... uh, taken over the banquet for this year and they're having a Christmas banquet at the church and well you had done it before but uh, now they're doing it and why did they get the job and I know I could bring more people to that banquet than they could and I'm not coming because I don't like the way that they do it and I don't like the way that they're setting it up what is that that's envy at the root of that thing or you see somebody who's getting mentioned at the church and you didn't get mentioned or someone that God God is working in in this this person's life and working in their family and their children are getting saved and my children are still backslidden and or still unsaved and still having all these kind of problems this brother over here has no health issues and I have all of these health issues what's going on and you envy the other person for one reason or another in church in the case of the Corinthians it was some people who had gifts where everybody could see them and hear them. They had speaking gifts. They had prophecy. They had tongues. And so they were up in front of other people. They were coming in and reading poetry, whatever. And then you had other people who were envious of them. In every church, I I don't know every church, I'm not God, but I would suppose in most churches, there is a diatrophies. You know who diatrophies is, right? If you've studied 3 John with us, you know who he is. He's the man who loves to have the preeminence. You say, what's that? He wants to be the big shot. He wants to be the one making the decisions. He wants to be the one at the helm of the ship, leading the church, steering the church. And in countries all over the uh, churches all over this country, you'll have a Diotrephes. And you might have a Mrs. Diotrephes, too. And they are just... Dead set on doing it their way, and they will walk over anybody that they have to in order to get it done their way. And they make the fatal mistake of not following the spiritual leader that God gave to the church, and that's the pastor. And they don't follow him. A lot of times you'll find a diatrophies in the deacon board. You'll find them there. But they're all over, and they, they, they envy the power that somebody else has. Envy says this, it's, it's me first. It's my way or, or no way at all. If it's not my way, I'm not coming. And I'll tell other people not to come. I have a better idea. I could do that better. This is envy talking. Why wasn't I asked to do it? Why wasn't I asked to pray? Why wasn't I asked to sing? I'm not coming because I don't like the way that so-and-so did it. I'm not coming because it's not the way that it used to be. What is all that? That's envy. That's pride at the heart of that. Listen, if you can't be happy when someone else is lifted up and given special mention for them, something in your heart's not right. If you can't be happy when God is working in someone's family and people are getting saved, well, something in your heart's not right. If you can't be happy for someone because they are enjoying good health 
and uh, a much-needed vacation and maybe a, a good uh, situation with the retirement and so on, something in your heart's not right. I, I'll tell you where envy comes into, into the spear of the pulpit is you go to a meeting like maybe the pastor's fellowship that we go to once a month, and you got all these preachers in there, and they take turns preaching. Somebody says, why didn't I get to preach? Or there's a big revival meeting for a, a denomination or a, a, a particular camp of independent Baptists or a particular school uh, with their graduates from their Bible Institute, and they have a yearly revival meeting, and, and some, some man who's graduated from that school comes to that thing and listens and says, why wasn't I asked to get up and preach? That kind of envy, that pride, that's in the ministry. Go to a woman's meeting and you got the women speak and they're all such a blessing, but you have some woman sitting in the congregation saying, why didn't I get asked to speak? You go to a church service and there's people getting up there and singing and, and they get up and sing and somebody's sitting there that has musical talent, but they say, why didn't the pastor ask me to do it? Well, I'll tell you why. It's because your heart's not right and God didn't lay it on his heart to ask you because <laughs> he knows your heart's not right because you're envious. There's envy within churches, and that stuff will break a church up. We can become envious of what another church is doing and say we should have things going on like that in our church, just like that other church is, is, has got. And so we need to start changing things around and moving things around here. And next thing you know, you mess the thing up because you're not following charity. You're following envy. We should have a church that's doing as well as their church. We should have a church that has a children's program like their church. We should do all this and that stuff like that, comparing us with another church, that's envy. God is not within 10 miles of that thing. God wouldn't touch that thing with a telephone pole. That's sick. That's rotten. That's bad fruit. It's not the fruit of the Spirit. It's envy. Godliness should say, God, I covet souls. I covet the best gifts. I covet a thriving ministry because I want people to be saved and to be discipled so that, God, you have the true worshipers that you desire and you get the glory that you deserve. That's what we should say, but not envying what somebody else is doing. I could say, well, I know Brother so-and-so, and he graduated with me back in 2010, and he's out there working out west, and he's got a church, and it's thriving, and what do I have? And start to get envious of that brother or watching his website and stuff like that. I've done that a little bit before. Yeah, I'll admit it. Yeah, that old envy starts welling up in your heart. And then all of a sudden you lose your joy about the things that the Lord is allowing you to do. You lose your joy. And then all of a sudden you're sour and then you have to repent. Confess it to the Lord. Lord, you put me where you put me, and you put him where you put him. And the story isn't over yet. And I'm sorry for being jealous of what somebody else has. Lord, look at that family. they got five or six kids there. Beautiful wife. Man, good-paying job, house, all that stuff. Their kids aren't sick. They don't have a child with autism. Get envious. Yeah. It's in your heart. It's in my heart. Say, how do we deal with it? Charity. Let God's love overrule. Listen, you got a throne in your heart. We all do. And on that throne, you know what ought to rule? Charity. 
when the king of kings is on that throne and he is ruling and you're submitted to his will and you say, Lord, even if I die for you, I will serve you. Even if you want me to suffer with some disease and you want to take me into a hospital so I can be a witness to somebody, I'll do it. I will serve you. I will love you. I want my rotten heart to be dethroned from selfishness, from impatience and unkindness and jealousy. I want that stuff to be kicked off the throne of my heart. I don't like it. Because once you're saved, you don't like that stuff anymore. Even though you can operate that way, you don't like it anymore. And you don't like to see it in other people. My goodness, we don't like to see it in our children or our grandchildren, do we? Well, what do you think when God looks down at his children? He don't like to see it. And so charity envieth not. Can you be happy when someone else does well? Sometimes in marriages, they have marital troubles because a spouse will get jealous of the other spouse because they seem to be more successful in their career calling. Maybe the wife starts doing better than the man in her career one way or another. Or maybe it might be that one is more sociable than the other and has more friends and the other is more like a wallflower. And sometimes there can be envy. Or it can be the kids seem to take to dad more than they take to mom. And I'm just getting walked on. I'm just like an old used pair of shoes and I'm just in the closet and everybody forgets about me until they need me. And there can be that kind of envy in the home, it's deadly. It's deadly. You know, we'll just finish with this. Charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself is not puffed up. In other words, charity's not proud and just parading around like a know-it-all. Sometimes we can do that with our knowledge in the church. We can parade it around and want everybody to know how much we know. Now, it's not, it's not wrong to teach and to have knowledge, but it just depends on what's in your heart. And it doesn't matter how people perceive you. They might perceive you as a know-it-all, and in your heart, you're not a know-it-all. You just have been studying, and you know some things, and you have answers. But in this church, they had people who were proud and just parading it around with what they had, their gifts, their knowledge, their prophecy, all that stuff. And God wanted nothing to do with it. He says, it's nothing to me. Listen, there's nothing in man to be proud about in this church. In what God is doing in this church, a work of salvation, a work of sanctification, a work of justification, there's nothing in us to be proud about. Nothing. The only good thing that's in me is because of the grace of God. Because I can guarantee you this. You wouldn't like me and I wouldn't like you if it weren't for the grace of God. You put us together for long enough. Come on now, you acting all self-righteous. You know what it's like to work in a workplace with a group of people. You might find one person in there that you get along with. You spend five, ten years with them. You know what happens at those meetings. You know what happens around the work site and the way people carry on and talk about each other and cut each other down and climb over top of each other and step on the backs and the necks of each other to try to get up to the top try to get the ear of the guy in charge so they can get their promotion or whatever. You know how it goes in us? That's why they say blood is thicker than water. That's why they say people will always side with their families over the churches. In, in us, there's nothing in us that would just say, you're just such a nice, sweet person, all that. No. If there's anything good in us, 
that can be said about us that God would say it's, it's, it's not nothing, it's something. It's something. It's because it's God's spirit producing uh, this thing in us. Therefore, if you do seem to have it together and have some kindness and some patience and some charity for one another, don't, don't look at your brother or sister who's struggling with selfishness and carnality and weakness. Don't look at them and be like, why can't you just get it together? <laughs> because if there's any good thing to be said about you, it's only because of God's grace. It's only because of God's grace in my life that there's anything whatsoever to be said about me that's any good. Charity has no reason to vaunt itself. That is to, to be puffed up, to be full of selfish pride. No matter how impressive you might think that you are, and how impressive you might think that your gifts are, or, or how, you know, how you're used of God, there's no cause whatsoever for bragging. A person like this, a person who's vaunted, he's just a stuffed shirt, just proud, just full of himself, just parading around his, his cockiness and his, his confidence, his self-conceit. A person like that has a very hard time saying sorry. And listen, I don't think you should be a doormat, and I don't think you should go around and you just, you know, with your poochy lip disease and you have no self-confidence and you can't look people in the eyes and you're not confident about knowing some things and doing some things. And yeah, I've accomplished some things in my life. I've worked hard to get where I am. I'm not saying that's wrong. What I'm saying is that somebody who's just puffed up against another to where they say, I don't care if this hurts their feelings. I don't care if they, you know, just get out of here. We'll be better off without you. I don't care. That kind of person has a hard time saying, I'm sorry. And you know what pleases God when we say, I'm sorry. A person who's puffed up, who's all inflated with the ego, their pride won't let them say, I'm sorry. I've hurt you. I've hurt others in the church. Their pride won't let them do it. Something about people, when they have reached the age of retirement, and having you know seen some things in life and raised some kids and you know you cleaned their diapers and took care of them and did everything took care of them and you know you tried to send them out of the nest and take flight you know and they had to come back for another try and come back to the nest for a little bit longer and then you send them off and you watch them make the same mistakes you made and stuff like that you go through the whole thing where they think they're smarter than you and then they get older and they realize you're pretty smart and you do know some things and and uh, now now I think my dad's one of the smartest people I know. But it's something about when you get to that age that you just get to a point to where it's hard for you to say, to humble yourself and say, I am to blame here partially at least. I am to blame and I am sorry. I want to work this out. Please forgive me. Don't go. Something about us. You say, you're just talking out of, out of the hat. You're just, you're just shooting from the hip. No, I'm not. Parents who have divorced have hurt their children deeply and owe their children an apology. I don't care what the reasons were for the divorce. Parents who have divorced owe their children an apology. You don't know it. They're not going to tell you, but they're waiting for one. I'm telling you the, the God's honest truth this morning. They're waiting for an apology. Divorces are hurtful to children. They'll hurt them all the way up into their 40s. And you know what? If you're, if you're vaunting yourself and saying, now listen, I have good reason. You don't know what she did. You don't know what he did. I didn't have to put up with that. You see, you're vaunted, vaunteth, puffed up. 
You're, you're, you're elevating yourself. You're vaunting yourself. I don't, I'm, I don't, I don't, I'll put that beneath me. That's beneath me. I don't have to do that. God says, don't vaunt yourself up. Don't puff yourself up. Go down like an elevator. The way up with God is the way down. God says, humble yourself. Fall prostrate before me. Humble yourself. There's apologies that need to be made in marriages. There's apologies that parents should have for children. There's apologies that children should make to parents. There's apologies amongst church members. But if you're full of envy and full of pride and self-conceit, your pride won't let you say your apology. And you know what people do? They'll say, I'm out of here. Good riddance. And you leave it behind you and you hop to another church. And you know what happens? You might forget about it. You might forget about it, maybe. But other people don't forget about it. And God doesn't forget about it. And you think I'm off in this other church and I've got a position here and I'm serving and I'm getting the recognition I deserve and things are really happening over here. And you think you got the spirit of God on your life and you're out of fellowship with God. And you don't have his touch on your life and you're operating in the flesh and you have no peace and you have no joy and you continue to have problems. And it might not be with unforgiveness or the lack of ability to say I'm sorry, but the problem will be with something else. It'll surface in some other way where there's a lack of charity. You see why I'm saying this is the most important message that we could hear? And you're sitting there and you're listening to me and you're saying, I, I, listen, buddy, I checked out a long time ago. I'm not going to take that from you. Okay, that's between you and the Lord. We need to take this spiritual bath. We need to, we need to humble ourselves. The devil is having a heyday. He is just tearing things up. And you say, you're the problem, buddy. You're the problem. Mm -mm. No, I'm not the problem. You know what the problem is? We just need more of Jesus in all of us. More of the love of Christ. More of the love of Christ. Could we stand to our feet with our heads bowed and... Heads bowed, eyes closed. Troubles in the church should not be an occasion for taking sides against each other, but we're doing it. Troubles in the church should cause us all to pull together and weather the storm.